Are you ready for our trail half marathon coming up? I'm ready, but I'm not so sure about my calves. Running over those sticks and rocks has got them sore and achy. Ow. Well, I wonder actually how that might relate to your muscle activity. I bet we could use the game-changing wireless sensors developed by our sponsor, Delsys, so they wouldn't interfere with my natural motion to find out. Hmm. Well, good point. And Delsys has done a lot of research and innovation to ensure they're collecting actual physiological data and not noise from movement artifacts and other contaminants, so they're super reliable sensors. Plus, onboard filtering helps to improve accuracy by mitigating against issues associated with collecting data and highly dynamic activities like trail running. And even other applications like sports performance analysis, clinical testing, and robotics. If you're listening and interested in seeing how these kind of advancements can empower your data collection in and out of the lab, go to delsis.com boom and enter to win one of their portable EMG solutions, the Trigno Light. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell. And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for boom. boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds, episode 67. Woo-woo! I'm Melissa. I'm Hannah. And we're so happy you're with us So, so happy. Because today, you are lucky to be listening to part three of our series on human performance that is supported by the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. In this series, we have been talking to experts who are doing awesome work in human performance, across academia and industry, and it has been a blast. It has. And if you've missed the two first episodes, don't worry. You can still go back and listen to them. So the first episode was with Caroline Kreider from Aura, who talked about Aura's work on closing the gap in women's health research and how they use customer insights to provide actionable data-driven health feedback. And in the second episode, Professor Nicole Keith shared her research in health equity and physical activity, both amazing women doing amazing work and yeah really started off the series strong and we just kept that trend going <laughs> yes today we talked with dr sachin panda who is a professor in the regulatory biology laboratory at the salk institute and is an expert researcher on circadian rhythms he even authored a book on the topic called circadian code we discuss everything from why circadian rhythms are important for our health what we know and don't know about these rhythms from scientific studies and how we can experiment with our own symptom systems to optimize our own health and performance. Also shares what he thinks are the top factors influencing our circadian rhythm from scientific perspective and, and scientifically founded factors, which I think these factors have been a real hot topic lately, yeah. I think, in just health communication. So it was awesome to get his thoughts on that, which which are really backed by a lot of research. Yeah, and he was. it was cool throughout the interview how he shared what studies were done in mice, what studies had been done by his lab versus other labs, and even some of the sort of nuances in doing this mice research and what are typical trends and what's involved and how to interpret data and, yeah, and findings from these studies. Exactly. How, like, what we should consider when mm -hmm. translating those to mm -hmm. humans when we haven't been able to actually do those studies in humans, in humans yet. Yeah. So that was all really exciting and important. If you find Boom exciting and important, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review us, and just share it with someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. Yeah. And with that, let's get into the interview. 
All right. Today, we are talking with Dr. Sachin Panda. Sachin is a professor in the Regulatory Biology Laboratory and the Rita and Richard Atkinson Chair at the Salk Institute. His work explores the genes, molecules, and cells that keep the whole body on the same circadian clock. We'll talk a lot about that in the interview. (laughs) And he even authored a book on the topic called The Circadian Code. And Sachin is famous for his work focusing on time-restricted eating, and we're really excited to dive into this and many other topics in a little bit. But just want to say thank you so much, Sachin, for being here with us today. You've done a lot of different interviews, and we're so excited to have you on Boom. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really happy to be on Boom. (laughs) Well, it's definitely mutual. We like to start off actually asking the question of when you knew that you first wanted to be a scientist. You can have that more broad or even um, specifically study circadian rhythms. Actually, my first curiosity about science made me convinced that I don't want to be a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) Please elaborate. (laughs) Back in India, I went to an Aggie school and I did pretty well in the Aggie school. So usually the best student in that school typically pursued a master's and maybe a PhD in plant breeding and genetics. And Mm -hmm. I realized that if you do plant breeding or genetics, then you have to work mostly on rice or wheat. And Mm -hmm. the breeding involves like looking at their flowering time when these plants actually flower and sometimes pollinating them. And both rice and wheat, unfortunately, they start, the flowers start opening somewhere around four o'clock in the morning. So that means you have to actually wake up really early to go to the field. <laughs> yes, which doesn't sound like something a student would want to be doing. Yeah, so that, so that I thought, okay, I should not become a plant breeder. <laughs> and then I was looking for alternative careers, and then I went to do a master's, and then, then I was working in a uh, in a company and uh, private sector. And then at that time, actually what struck me was how little we know about the biology of time. In biological systems, most of the stuff that we know about treating disease or increasing performance, we talk about tissues, cells, force, genes. But when I look at the timing aspect, we think I became more and more interested that most of our physiology, biology, performance all relate to time. I mean, mm. starting from, say, cancer is actually a disease of mistiming of cell cycle because the cells divide much faster than when they're supposed to. They, they divide much faster than the normal cells. So similarly, if you think about endurance, it's endurance you can divide that into the factor of time, how quickly or how slowly you are using your energy and then how fast your heart is beating, how much you can breathe, how frequently you can breathe, and your pace, all of these relate to time. And we don't actually study timing explicitly. So that's why I thought it would be cool to study timing and then among all the timing, different scales of timing from milliseconds or neurons firing or seconds when we run to minutes for glucose regulation. There are all these phenomena, but 24 hours rhythm, circadian literally means near 24 hours rhythms. Those are universal and they're the same in pond scum or cyanobacteria 
floating on the ocean or on a farm to humans and woolly mammoth. So then I thought, okay, so circadian rhythm, studying circadian rhythm in one organism or animal, even as simple as plants or drosophila or mouse, you can study that and that can be potentially applied to human. And that's how I got into circadian rhythm. Sorry, it was a long answer. No, it's interesting and kind of funny because it kind of circles back a little bit with plant breeding and now and then doing mice studies where you also might have to uh, be caring for the mice at all hours of the day or night <laughs> as well. But I guess when it's something that you're really passionate about, then uh, that makes it a little bit <laughs> different. Well, the thing is, uh, if you think about it, we cannot evolve as a species and do all these or something without breaking our circadian rhythm. Imagine if you can just stay in bed eight hours every single night from say 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then it'll be very hard to achieve whatever you are achieving. So <laughs> the weird thing is, as human race, we have to break circadian rhythm for at least few days, few years in our life, at least for some people, to make our society thrive. But at the same time, the stuff that we break actually in the long run can break our health. This concept of breaking like, is so interesting. We think of thinking of breaking time, breaking that cycle. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting word to think about. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you know, regulating circadian rhythm is so important to our health and then sort of what the detriments are when we break it? Yeah, so circadian rhythms, as I said, literally means near 24-hour rhythms. The reason why we have these rhythms are all life forms on this planet, starting from bacteria, fungi, plants, animals, all of us. We evolved on this planet that has one thing that is predictable, happens every single day. That's light-dark cycle or day-night cycle. Mm-hmm. And with light and darkness, it's not that only we're changing light and darkness. The temperature undergoes the daily rhythm. Humidity undergoes daily rhythms. Even airflow, for example, the mornings are much more quieter in airflow than in many cases then. So then the question is, well, we have to, all our animals have to adapt to these predictable changes. So that's why we develop these rhythms that are engraved or imprinted in our genome. Then the question is, what are the benefits of having circadian rhythm? So whenever we are thinking of time, one thing about measuring time is we can predict what's going to happen next. Just imagine if you don't have a clock, if you don't have any access to timing information, it will be very hard for you to predict or imagine when you have to go to class. Mm-hmm. So a watch actually gives you that predictive power so that you can look at it. Okay, 10 minutes to class. I can walk from my dorm to class in seven minutes. I should start walking now. So if you don't have that watch, then you'd be looking out the window and thinking, oh, when other people start walking, maybe I'll start walking. Or maybe you'll <laughs> move in the morning, you'll come and stand outside the classroom and think, okay, whatever the professor shows up. So having clock gives our body and mind this awesome predictive power. Mm-hmm. So that means before we wake up, our body prepares to wake up. Our heart rate goes to goes up slightly. Our breathing goes up slightly more, and our core body temperature begins to rise. Melatonin production stops two hours or three hours before we wake up. All of this predictive 
ability actually helps us to wake up or go to sleep to avoid predator and the wild mm. or to wake up so that you can be opportunistic to get to your food first before your competitors are there so that's one prediction or anticipation and then the second thing is separation so for example there are many things in biology starting from individual cells to our whole animals that we want to separate biological processes just imagine being hungry and being sleepy you should not be feeling extremely hungry in the middle of your sleep then you'll just wake up and go for <laughs> food so by separating or similarly your muscle tone should not be at its peak when you are sleeping because then there is no use because you cannot run during daytime to get to food so the second function of circadian rhythm is to temporarily separate incompatible process from cells all the way to whole animal and in biochemical basis we are actually seeing simple oxidative processes that require oxygen and reductive processes that actually don't require oxygen Mm-hmm. they are temporarily separated to two different parts of the two different time in individual cells so then the third one is synchronization so in many things we know that and synchronization is a very simple idea for any biochemical process or any physiological process there are many hormones there are enzymes and there are neurotransmitters or nerve chemicals all of them act together to do something just imagine just walking your energy has to be pretty high you should be your brain should be ready to coordinate your muscle and then your muscles should be able to break that chemical energy to produce mechanical energy all of this have to be coordinated mm-hmm. so that synchronization is also another aspect of circadian rhythm starting from single cell to whole animal we synchronize a lot of things together for us to be a lot more productive more curious during daytime to run to achieve what we want to do and so these are many these are three or four different benefits that i told you and that's why we do have circadian rhythm if we don't have then for example our hormones don't rise up at the right time we may not be able to our digestive enzymes may not accumulate at the right time mm. uh, before our breakfast for example or they may rise up too much late at night giving rise to acid reflux so mm. similarly our cortisol or steroid levels they should peak only in the morning not in late afternoon or night and if there is mistiming of corticosteroids or cortisol then we cannot sleep or we feel horrible in the morning because we don't have that alertness hormone so this yeah. mistiming can lead to discomfort in short run but if this mistimings continue for many days years or months then that can lead to disease so one example was cell cycle cells should divide in every 18 to 24 hours and when they start dividing much faster then you get tumor and then when that goes out of control then you get cancer there are many examples where circadian rhythm disruption or this timing disruption can contribute to discomfort in short run just like mm-hmm. when you have jet lag or uh, when you stay awake till past midnight on saturday sunday sorry friday saturday night and then <laughs> horrible 
<laughs> or Saturday, or Sunday. Sunday, fun day. That's really helpful. So we talked a bit about, um, just to kind of summarize, we have circadian rhythm. You mentioned three main aspects of that are to predict, separate, and synchronize different bodily processes and functions. And breaking that can have detrimental effects on our health. I... I'm curious. I feel like there's been a number of studies and information out in the public, whether that's from podcasts or other media, on many different factors that affect circadian rhythm. You study time-restricted eating, for example, or feeding, but also, you know, morning light, exercise, when we go to bed, what we're eating, having, you know, light at, at night. I feel like there's been so many different factors coming out. And I'm, I'm curious from your, your perspective, what do you think are maybe a couple of the most scientifically founded factors that influence circadian rhythm? And also what might be one or two of uh, the most overhyped factors that might not be as scientifically founded or might not deserve as much attention as it, as it gets? Yeah, so actually there are two factors that are well recognized now to be uh, dominant influencers of circadian rhythm. One is light. There's no doubt about it because, as I said, we evolved on this planet with predictable change in light and darkness. So as accordingly... Plants, animals, even cyanobacteria, fungi, we all have light sensing mechanisms that connect to circadian rhythm. Almost every light receptor that we know, in, starting from cyanobacteria to humans, we always think that, okay, so light sensing relates to, say, photosynthesis or making carbohydrate in plants and cyanobacteria, fungi, etc., to humans using light sensing to navigate our world by vision. But what is becoming very clear is in all organisms, light sensing is directly or indirectly connected to circadian clock, telling the clock whether it's morning or evening or how much intensity of light is out there. So for example, in humans and mice, we know there are rods and cones that we use to See, in dim light, rods are used for dim light and cones for color vision and during daylight. Rod and cones sense light and give us the vision of the world, but they also indirectly affect circadian rhythm because they signal through a specific type of cells called retinal ganglion cells. These carry information from the retina to the brain. And a subset of those retinal ganglion cells, very small subset, nearly 5,000, cells or so, neurons, also produce another light-sensing molecule called melanopsin. And in fact, when I was a postdoc, my lab and two other labs uh, almost at the same time discovered the role of melanopsin in entraining mouse circadian clock and in extension human circadian rhythm to light-dark cycle. And melanopsin is most sensitive to blue light in fact, even in the presence of rod and cone and melanopsin, melanopsin becomes the dominant light sensor that conveys all the light information, whether it's collected from rod and cones or collected from melanopsin, that resets the circadian clock. So that led to the idea that maybe activating melanopsin during daytime, when we are supposed to see light, is better and preventing 
melanopsin activation or preventing this light receptor from seeing light at night is a good idea to tell the brain that no, it's nighttime, you should go to bed. So that led to this idea that we should be exposed to more light, particularly blue spectrum of light during daytime, and reduced blue spectrum of light at nighttime. That's scientifically grounded, but then melanopsin also connects to different parts of the brain that can exacerbate migraine pain and can exacerbate vision-related fatigue. Whether that actually happens in humans is still, that research is going on, but it's clear that there are many cases of uh, migraine pain where wearing blue filtering eyeglasses can reduce the severity or incidences of migraine pain. But then the question is, how much blue filtering you need? Right? Is it 5% of blue light uh, reducing by 5% is good enough or 50% or 80% or 100%? So this is where when you go to say optometrist and then they will say, well, do you need a blue filtering coating? And most people will say, yes, why not? It's not going to do any harm. But we don't know whether that coating is going to reduce blue light by 5%, 10%, 15%, 50%, and, and whether that's good for you. It's almost like no single size shoes will fit everybody. Similarly, this is something that we don't know what will actually be beneficial because you may be reducing your chance for migraine pain, but by filtering out too much blue light during daytime, but you may also reduce the ability of light to improve mood and you may get into depression. So that's the thing that we still don't understand in science. And I think this is what everybody should pay attention. So one thing is, there's no way we can go and expect our doctor to know everything and tell us how to live our life in those 15 minutes that we have with our physician every single year. I mean, we expect a lot from our physician, but (laughs) at the end of the day, we still have to be our own when we think of personalized medicine or personalized healthcare, that centers around the person, that centers around you, all of us. So we have to know our body, we have to know how we feel, how we react to certain drugs, certain just like you react to what you we all react to how what we're wearing, whether it's comfortable or not. Similarly, pair of eyeglasses. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> blue light coating and see, are you feeling more depressed now? Or is it making any difference? Are you prone to migraine pain? So it has to come down to that person. And at this point, at that point, what you need is information, what you should be looking out for. And this is some information that helps. The other thing is evening, avoiding bright evening light. And that there, I think there is a lot of strong consensus that yes, to fall asleep or to being able to sleep, we should avoid bright light. And then the question is, what is bright light? And this is where, again, some people are very sensitive to light. Some people are less sensitive to light. Some people will say, well, I don't care. Even if I, my phone is at full brightness, I can still just get to bed and I will fall asleep. But some people will say, well, if I'm reading something on full brightness, I actually, my brain is jazzed up and I cannot sleep. But the bottom line is, yes, try to avoid bright light. Like, for example, don't light up your bathroom and 
bedroom with uh, bright blue LED. It looks cool, but it will <laughs> fall asleep. I'll have to go back and take that down <laughs> yeah. after the interview. But this is one of the stuff that everybody will... <laughs> Everyone can agree on that level of yes. Yeah, it's interesting. I think to use yourself as an experiment, almost. But knowing, I think knowing yourself, knowing what you want to improve or focus on, and then trying things to see how that affects it. And I think it's also interesting, as you're saying, some people say, you know, light doesn't bother me, or for example, or like watching TV to like fall asleep. Like to me, I'm very like noise sensitive too. In addition to light, like I feel like I'm like very high maintenance. But then I wonder too, at the same time, like, can, is it possible to just get used to those things at night or have it be affecting after you go to sleep in ways that you aren't necessarily aware of? Mm-hmm. What are some of those maybe nuances that make it tricky to self-assess? Yeah, so I guess a few things are, you know, to see how sensitive you are to light, you can always try the experiment where you try to turn off as much light as possible in your house without <laughs> compromising safety. So you should have light <laughs> in your staircase. You should have light. And, and you can do light layering. For example, you know, light table lamps that will light up the surface from which you are reading, but not your eyes. Mm-hmm. And then you see whether you actually fall asleep faster. And people have done this kind of experiments. And I know some people, they would <laughs> actually, there was one couple, they said, well, we'll have a candlelight week. And for one week, they said, okay, either we'll light up candle or have equivalent of LED candles. And if we want to read anything, we'll just put table lamp and then read. And they quickly realized that they used to go to bed that they never fell asleep before midnight. And by doing this candlelight week experiment, they figured out that, huh, they can actually fall asleep by 9, 9.30 if they do this. So then they realized that they're not actually that night owl. The bright light in their house was making them night owl. So this is one experiment that many people can do to figure out what is their light sensitivity level. And for example, when I travel, even a little bit of light in the hotel room can disrupt my sleep. Then we all know that when you go to a new place, it's really hard to fall asleep easily. And I think I just have my eye mask or mm-hmm. I yeah. go around and block all this uh, light leak <laughs> and that somehow improves my sleep. So these are some of the experiments. That... So that's light. And then a few years ago, almost 10, 15 years ago, we and other people, we figured out that we did, I mean, so we did very simple experiments that many circadian rhythm labs do. The question is, mice actually sleep during daytime. They don't eat during daytime. Mm. They mostly eat at night because they're nocturnal, they're night active. And then we asked, well, if we start feeding mice during daytime, then what happens to their circadian clock? Because if light is the dominant time giver and trends all the circadian clock, then is the liver clock going to be trained by light sensed in the retina, sensed, transmitted through the brain to liver? Or the liver clock is going to take timing cue from food. In this experiment, how do you, is light, because typically the mice aren't windows, right? They're, I feel like a lot of animal experiments are kind of a closed off area. So is, is the light part of that just turning on the light in the, the room, yeah, for example, and that's how you're yeah. controlling that? Okay. Yeah. 
I mean, we are uh, our circadian system, just like mouse circadian system, is very sensitive to light. Even mm-hmm. five to ten lux of light. One lux of light is equivalent to having a candle in a dark room and sitting one foot away from the candle. So that's one lux. And ten lux is having ten candles in the room, and five lux is five candles in the room. So even if the mice have access to one lux of light during daytime and no light at night, that is enough to entrain the circadian clock. Wow! Interesting. And the same thing will happen to humans. I mean, even if we have one to five lux of light during daytime and absolutely no light at night, that will also entrain our circadian. Mm. <laughs> so. When we do these experiments, and then we go back and see, okay, so because we have many different ways looking at genes, at clock genes, and their messages, their protein levels, and to our surprise, what we found was that the mouse liver clock actually follows when the mice eat, and then subsequently other labs also figured out that not only liver, liver, heart, pancreas, almost everything outside the brain and also in the brain, except for very small part of the hypothalamus that's right above the base of the brain, most of the brain actually track when we eat. So that completely changed the equation because, of course, we can use light to some extent, but we know that in modern days, we tend to eat late into the night. So that means when we eat very late into the night at past the midnight, then our circadian clocks are getting confused, thinking, okay, is it the last dinner or is it the breakfast? They're confused. Let's figure out. So that disrupts this timing mechanism. So that's why right now it's well recognized that light and food are the biggest time givers to human and mouse circadian rhythm. Of course, Ambient temperature cycle can also potentially give that timing cue, but we live in almost near constant temperature because of ambient <laughs> temperature mm-hmm. inside rooms that don't fluctuate too much. So that's why now there is enough consensus. When it comes to exercise, there is we are likely to be more active during daytime. So, and again, if you want to exercise somebody in the middle of the night, you cannot. You have to wake that person up. That person is not going to do exercise in darkness; has to have light then it becomes difficult to figure out whether it's the light or the exercise that's entering the circadian clock. But I guess that is also exercise can, is changing metabolism because we're burning glycogen, we're burning some fat and using that. So exercise will also raise cortisol level. So I guess there is also a fair amount of consensus that yes, mistimed exercise or exercise at the right time can can modulate or affect circadian rhythm. So at the end of the day, it's the light, food, and exercise that timing of these three can affect circadian clock. Super thoughtful, super comprehensive, super eloquent explanation of all of that, super clear. I'm curious, you said something toward the end of that, that when you were talking about feeding and how that can sort of disrupt the light and maybe even override lights and training of the circadian rhythm is one of these more important to follow for our body like is is it most important for for our bodies to be following the light and train circadian rhythm and that's sort of the gold standard and we're not we don't want to interrupt that or is it 
sort of okay for it to re-entrain to the feeding one. And maybe we even change our environment to change our light environment to entrain to the food one. Like, yeah, I'm just curious about- Or temperature about, one. Or temperature one. Yeah, yeah, like, could you just retrain everything to a certain one? And as long as you're on any, like, consistent, synchronized circadian cycle, is that okay? Or should we always sort of be trying to orient back to the, the light Yeah, one? so, you know, all the- Animal experiments people do all over the world. The animals are actually kept in 12 hours, approximately 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. So that means they're really on a very strong circadian time queue. Even we humans, we don't stay in that strong yeah. timing <laughs> queue. Right? But then in animals, if you feed them at the wrong time, that can disrupt their circadian rhythm and lead to disease. And the best example is if you give mice yummy, high energy dense diet, high fat and high sucrose diet or high fructose diet, then mice nibble on that food around the clock, around 24 hours. So then here is a clear example where light dark cycle did not change, but the feeding fasting cycle changed or dampened. And that can lead to obesity, diabetes, metabolic disease, all these other diseases. And in that condition, if we consolidate feeding to nighttime for mice, then we can improve their health. We can even increase endurance in these mice. And in some cases, we can also increase their muscle mass, motor coordination, metabolism, reduce risk for cancer, and even if the mice get cancer, the tumors don't grow faster. So this is a wow. clear example where even under strong light-dark cycle, mistimed feeding can increase the risk of disease, and then timed feeding can reduce the risk of disease. Then you might ask, well, what if you put the mice in constant light, where we know that light will disrupt a lot of circadian rhythm, constant light? Hmm. Or you feed mice during daytime when they're not supposed to eat. In that case also, we see there is benefit. So although they don't get full benefit of nighttime time-restricted feeding, but even daytime restricted feeding is much better than eating at random time. And even more careful experiments are done by other labs where the food quality was improved and they reduce the calorie intake. And we know that calorie restriction increases lifespan and health span. And when that calorie restriction is done, even during daytime, there is much better than calorie restriction than eating around the clock. And of course, calorie restriction at nighttime for mice was the best. So the bottom line is, yes, any time restriction has a lot of benefits and one should pay attention to light. And of course, we don't have control over lighting because there are many places, for example, if you're living in a dorm, it depends on your roommate's preference. If you have nighttime lectures or if you're doing evening sports or going to a game or something, you don't have access. You don't have control over light. The biggest challenge is we don't have much control over light. You can wear a pair of sunglasses and go to this drugstore. <laughs> But you got to yeah. think about your social acceptance so that people don't <laughs> what's wrong with you. Do we have conjunctivitis or something else? <laughs> start assuming. So that's why food timing becomes 
much more important and you are more likely to have control over that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting as you talk about, you know, not having as much control over light when I think of, you know, earlier humans where maybe it just felt more natural, like the sun is coming up and then you're waking up naturally with it. And it's like, oh, we have to be conscious to make sure that we get light. And then when the sun is going down, we're reducing our amount of light. And it's just interesting sometimes how I feel like the more we're learning, the more we kind of are circling back (laughs) to things that might have once seemed natural to us. I think what you're saying is very important that we created this anthropogenic world, this man-made world in the last 150 to 200 years after the Industrial Revolution without paying attention to circadian rhythm. And now that we know the significance of circadian rhythm, can we make an intelligent design of our world so that we can it can nurture our circadian rhythm? That's the basic. So that way, I feel like this is the later and asbestos moment in <laughs> in our life. Because, <laughs> you know, we built many buildings with laden asbestos until the 70s. And then we figured out that, no, these are not good for our health. And mm. we're rebuilding our indoor environment without laden asbestos. So similarly, now that we are learning about circadian rhythm, then we are thinking how to bring these elements back mm-hmm. to improve right. health. And one simple example is, you know, all the neonatal ICUs all over the world used to be lit 24-7 because even at nighttime, the nurses have to come and check on the babies to see whether they are doing okay. Although people think that that these preemies don't have circadian rhythm because we know that the newborn babies also, the only thing they do is they sleep for three to four hours and they wake up and cry (laughs) and then you feed them and then they smile and then play for an hour or two. And they have to be cute for a little, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then we assume that they don't have circadian rhythm. So we didn't pay attention to light and darkness. But now studies in Mexico and uh, other places are showing that if you just simulate little bit of light dark cycle. Of course, you cannot switch off all the light at nighttime for babies. Mm-hmm. Even if you dim down to 20 lux at night and during daytime you can go pretty high, then that promotes their growth so that these preemies are released from hospital on an average 12 to 13 days earlier. Wow. Those wow, that's who, a lot of time. That's a lot of time. It means there is not a single drug that can accelerate growth among preemies so that they can be out of the hospital even by four or five days. And the relevance is this. In the U.S., one in 10 childbirth is now premature. So that means 380,000 babies are born premature in the U.S. and they usually typically stay in the NICU for a few days. Now to the calculation, if you can reduce NICU time by 3 million NICU days, that's a huge amount of healthcare saving. And plus the emotional stress that parents have when their kids are in pins. You just got a cute little baby and that baby is, you cannot even hold the baby. It's a NICU and it's a huge emotional stress. And we're always thinking, okay, you're praying, you're thinking, everything should be okay. So this the is The parents and the baby. Yeah. 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 This is one example where simple attention to circadian rhythm. And then similarly, there are many kids who go through various kinds of therapies for which they cannot actually swallow food. So they're in 
continuous feeding liquid diet fed through tube. And usually they were fed even 24-7. And now there is a recent paper that came out showing that, yes, if you do time-restricted feeding in hospital to these kids, they actually got get much better sooner. So this, these are some of the examples. Of course, in this study, we don't know whether they control for lighting and other stuff. But the point is, these are small steps, baby steps that we are seeing, and that can, when they are reduced to practice, a standard of care, then will have a huge impact on health, starting from birth all the way to adulthood. Yeah, I love that example. I actually hadn't heard of that. I really like it because I think it just really shows the impact that science and science translated can make. I think sometimes it just feels like it, it takes a long time to really have a strong found scientific foundation or understanding of some of these processes and factors that affect our health. But it's really cool, I think, to hear a way that that's really had a positive impact. I'm wondering, so in, in terms of time-restricted feeding, you've had studies exploring time-restricted feeding in mice and humans, and there's been a recent study from Cell Reports in 2021 looking at the effects of age and sex changes that come with time-restricted feeding or the effects of age and sex on change, on those changes. I would like to ask you for more details on that, but I'm wondering in terms of light, now that we've been talking about light a lot, I guess I, I haven't – I think I've heard a lot about much more in terms of differences in sex on time-restricted feeding. Are there any – is there any research on the effect of sex on light and how that affects the circadian rhythm and health? We don't see much differences uh, in terms of sex affecting the impact of light on circadian rhythm. But at the same time, I would say most of the studies are in mice and if we want to talk about humans, then we have to do those studies. And unfortunately, most of the studies on impact of light on, say, how it constricts our pupil to how it resets our clock, those are not powered enough to say whether light has a differential impact on male and female. But from evolutionary point of view, we know that all, both male and females do have strong circadian clock, and mm-hmm. even in studies where we have put active watch or the sleep diary or people maintain sleep diary or people maintain, or we collect light, lighting information from their wrist watch, we don't see much differences in their response to light. So I guess my answer is I assume there is no difference and that assumption is mostly based on the lack of report, but again, it's a circular argument because <laughs> no study has specifically asked that question, whether there is a gender difference and whether those studies were powered enough or reproduced enough to make a concrete statement. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be a little bit risky too in perhaps relationships which have a male and female when there may be something needing to be done that would have affect the circadian rhythm or the light and, you know, the other other person might be <laughs> taking yeah. uh, the hit for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so time restricted feeding, essentially in animal experiments when we do, we typically let animals eat somewhere between 8 to 12 hours. And most animal experiments of time restricted feeding are done 8, 9, or 10 hours. Because if you reduce below eight hours, then these mice eat less. So there is calorie reduction. 
So in science, we always want to see what is the pure effect of time restriction independent of calorie restriction. So that's why we do eight to nine hours. And the study that you're mentioning, we, we most of the studies were done in male mice prior to that study. So that's why we wanted to know whether it has an impact on female mice. Mm. There's some caveat to this kind of studies. One is most laboratories in metabolic research, they use this strain of mice called C57 black 6. And these mice are widely used, but it's also known that the if you put C57 black 6 mice on a diet that can cause obesity, then only male mice become obese. The female mice get a little bit upward, but they don't get really that obese that quickly. And that's why people tended to avoid working with female B6 mice. Because if you don't have a disease, then it's really hard to study the mechanism of disease or the treatment that will cure the disease. But we said, well, people always looked at weight. But we know that weight is not always an indicator of health. And this is a big, huge thing that is also in human psyche. We always think that, well, if somebody is lean, then he or she is supposed to be healthy and we always even say that, oh, that person was so lean, but how come he got, or she got this disease? I don't understand mm-hmm. it. And conversely, there are also many people who are overweight or obese, and they can't be metabolically healthy for a very long time in their life. So we should not equate obesity or being overweight with being unhealthy all the time. So then we asked, okay, so we know that this C57B6 female mice, they don't usually gain weight. And let's put both male and female mice, young and old, because there's this idea that even old males beyond the age of 50 or 60, they still they their metabolism is so different that any intervention that's known to reduce weight or improve health may not work in old male and female. So that's why we did this experiment where we put three months old, which is equivalent to say 20 year old, three months old mice, which is equivalent to 18 to 25 years old male humans, a 12 months old mice is equivalent to 45 to 55 year old humans. So this two edges of mice on nine hours of time restricted feeding at night time. And we give them a diet that's 45% calories from fat, 15 to 20% calories from simple sugar, which is close, not identical to uh, the typical Western diet that many, not all, people eat. So that's 35 to 40 percent fat and a lot of simple soup. So when we do this, the mice that eat ad libitum or whenever they can, they want, they can eat. The male mice gained a lot of weight as expected. The female mice didn't get so much weight. Mm-hmm. And that happened in both is young and middle-aged. And then the mice that ate within nine hours, since the male mice were not getting getting it, sorry, since the male mice were gaining a lot of weight, then time restricted feeding actually prevented that weight gain, or at least statistically we could see, yes, there was a weight gain reduction. Since the female mice were not getting too much weight, then mm. it was hard to see, see that difference. Yeah. the difference. So oh, people might think that, oh, time restricted feeding doesn't have impact on female mice. Hmm. The point is, if the mice were healthy, were normal weight, then you cannot make them super healthy, at least by weight. So that's the 
confusing part. But mm, interesting. We do animal research because we can look at genes, tissues, and other things. So when you looked into the liver, both male and female mice that ate the Western diet, they actually get liver disease. Their liver has more fat when they eat at libitum or whenever they mm. want. But time restricted feeding, even though it did not change the weight in female mice, it actually protected them from this liver disease. So that means weight loss is not always a prerequisite or first step. Before you see health improvement, you can have health improvement even with very little or no weight loss. And human studies have shown that mm. in mm-hmm. many time restricted feeding studies where if you look carefully on all subjects, then you'll see that there are some subset of people who don't so much change in body weight, but their metabolism improves. The mm-hmm. same thing happened. And then when it comes to human health, particularly middle age or older age, and you might have heard many times, we always think about few numbers. How much is your weight? How much is your blood sugar level, blood cholesterol level? and triglyceride, etc. So we always do the same thing in mice, and we found that both male and female mice, young and old, they have much better metabolism, so that means they have less liver fat. They control their blood glucose much better, even if when they're challenged with very sugary drinks. And the blood cholesterol level, the bad cholesterol particularly, is much lower, and inflammation is much lower. And then when we ask, well, are they gaining muscle mass? We know that the male mice actually gain muscle mass in time pressure feeding. The female mice don't gain much muscle mass, but at the same time, since they don't have too much fat mass, they're kind of in that equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, how much of this mouse study is actually related to human? And this question always comes up in many studies. Of course, in... There are two things to this very broad question. One is, as I mentioned, mice sleep during daytime. In circadian rhythm field, we know that we work around their sleep. We figure out when to, we put the light-dark cycle in the opposite phase. So when it's day for us, it's night for them. So we can actually work with awake behaving mice. Both your circadian rhythms are in the right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the right phase. Like our yes. activity and mouse activity right. is in phase. We are synced up. Yes. <laughs> but in many, most of the labs, they work with mice during daytime when they're sleeping. So just imagine if somebody wants to check, test out a diabetes drug, blood pressure drug, or cancer drug, are they going to come to my home, wake me up in the middle of the night, inject something, and then see whether it's effective or not? And that's what is happening in many mouse studies around the world. All of these are tested in mice and rats when they are supposed to sleep. So as a result, what happens is many of them don't translate as we expect in humans. So that's one big challenge. In this case, time pressure feeding or any other study, there's another aspect that's also very different from human and mice. That is, in a mice that we use in animal studies or rats, they are homozygous and homogeneous. So that means for every single gene, they have the same identical two copies and all the mice have the same identical genes. It's almost like doing 
all your human studies on twins. Yeah. <laughs> Not only identical twins, that will be like 500 twins or 500 <laughs> identical <laughs> born to the same. So then as we humans have very different genes, very different combination of genes, and there are many cases when the mice actually may be mutant for something and we humans have very normal genes. So that's another reason why we always have to take the results from mice with a big boulder of salt and spice maybe. And (laughs) 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 that's why it's very important to really come back and do this test in humans. Well, I love that. Well, one, thank you for, yeah, all those awesome explanations. I think it kind of circles back to the earlier point about personalized medicine and kind of being your own, understanding your own body, but also understanding how to interpret, you know, what science is telling us and the importance of knowing things like the male mice get obese normally and the female mice don't. And so you might not see the reason you don't, that's the reason you don't see a change and maybe is less related to the actual intervention. And also that the importance of being able to measure some of these things that you might not be able to see weight gain and correlating that or weight loss and correlating that with health or disease makes me think about a lot of different things that I'd be excited about for how we might advance in this field. But I'm curious or we're curious to know what you're most excited about for the future of, you could say, human performance research, circadian rhythm research, um, anything we've talked about today. What are you most excited about? I mean, when it comes to human health or our daily lifestyle, there are three foundations, sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And it's the, these three, particularly what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and exercise that affect our health. And we talked about, we talked about sleep and nutrition to some extent. And I think the exercise is one aspect that's really exciting for me. Like, for example, the other day, I was trying to run and then I realized that, okay, so my, my I like best. that you say trying yeah, to yeah, run. Yeah. You're not running, but you're attempting to run. I mean, my running is <laughs> negligible compared to, you know, the other day. I'll give you an example. Okay, so <laughs> during this, during the USAI Human Performance Alliance, this is the awesome thing that's happening right now because Clara Oud just had this brilliant idea that whatever we know about human performance or human health comes from studying disease. And then what can we learn by studying peak performance from athletes? And, you know, it doesn't hit you until, I think it didn't hit me <laughs> that strongly until I really experienced it. So for example, during this, during this Human Performance Alliance conference, I stumbled onto a peak performing athlete, Aston Eaton, so he is Olympic gold medalist for decathlon. I mean, decathlon is really hard, and I've seen that yeah. in, <laughs> in world athletics in Oregon. And then he's, uh, I said, Aston, you want to talk? He said, well, in the morning, maybe I have a little bit of time. I said, can we talk in the morning? He said, well, at 5 o'clock, I'll go for a run. You want to join? I said, well, <gasps> I will join. And then I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll run slow. He said, I'll run slow and we'll run only three miles. Oh, well, yeah. I yeah. love when runners tell you they're going to run slow. It's Never all relative. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> exactly at five. It's not 4.49.50. It's not five. <laughs> exactly at five. <laughs> five shows yeah. up. 
So we're running in Stanford campus. And then he said that we'll just run three miles. And we're running. And, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm kind of running, I'd say, eight and a half minutes a mile. That's my pace. And I'm huffing and puffing. And Aston is talking as if he's just sitting on his couch <laughs> and talking to me about philosophy, about genetics and curiosity. Uh, what are the whoa. big questions he has? Yeah. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm... Responding to, him, <laughs> yeah, to the extent that he said, "Well, I know this place where there is a water fountain, and we can run by that." Because he thought that I'm kind of almost dehydrated. <laughs> but in the behind my mind, I was thinking, "Okay, so let's think like why Aston can actually run at this pace, which is nothing for him, and for me, it's a struggle. Eight and a half minutes a mile is a struggle for me." What is going on? He's breathing. His lungs function are very different. His heart must be beating at a much slower rate than mine. And my motor coordination is different. Maybe my ground reaction force is different. Maybe my total strength, my total power output is different. And this would be awesome to just put a bunch of wearables and a bunch of electrodes into his head and my head, and then let's both work and then figure out. And... That's really amazing to think about that, that that performance. And then if you look at even the best marathon runners, now they're trying to, he's going to try soft two hours. Means four below five minutes a mile. Come on, I'm struggling at 8.30. Yeah. <laughs> How can this person run on an average four and a half, below five for 20 plus miles? What is the kind of metabolism, neural connectivity, and his heart function, all of this? What makes that person so different? And then at the same time, you wonder whether he's running it at the age of 38. He's going to run this marathon in Boston Monday, uh, next week. But why can he not maintain that when he becomes uh, 58 or 60? What deteriorates? And if we can figure out what are the weak links and work on it, maybe we'll actually have Boston Marathon runners who can do sub two hours even when they're 70. Because imagine over the last 30 or 40 years, we have been, whatever is happening, means we are always thinking about the obesity trend, but at the same time, there's another thing going on that is in running, for example, there is continuously, in every two to three years, there is a new record being set. So human performance in that way is actually going up and up and up. And now we've got to think how that performance is sustained as we get older. And I think that's exciting to me. And this is not something that will come from by studying one cell type, one organ at a time, but studying multiple organs, studying cell biology, biochemistry, genetics, biomechanics, brain-body axis, all of this. And that presents a very new kind of challenge for scientists because this is where every science that is poised to address big questions in human performance have to involve interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach, team science, and all kinds of stuff. And that's very exciting. 
That's really exciting to us too. And I think like you're saying, a lot of research has been focused on disease and it's exciting to see this other, the other spectrum, the other side to that in peak performance and, and how that can then inform even perhaps disease populations or the average person. And it is really exciting to see all these, I think, especially all these different disciplines coming together to really have this like holistic understanding of peak performance. And we've really enjoyed talking to you and getting to know the part that your your research is coming in with in circadian rhythms and time restricted feeding and appreciate everything you've you've taught us today which I think a lot of it is really applied and I'm excited to go try some of uh, these in in my own life <laughs> yeah and I'll just echo your last point about team science and appreciate how even in this conversation you've brought up lots of different labs and other people who have studied these things and the great humility you bring to the work you've done you've yeah really made huge headway in this field and been a visionary for how it can advance so we just really appreciate you and your collaboration and your commitment to the Alliance and your commitment to communicating science as well, which we didn't get to talk about a lot, but you have been a huge disseminator of science research findings, both to scientific audiences and also lay audiences. So we really appreciate you yeah, you doing that and committing yeah, to that. Yeah, and you've been on massive podcasts with massive reach like the Huberman Lab. And so we appreciate you <laughs> taking time to be on uh, Boom. <laughs> I feel like we have a our first celebrity here today. <laughs> no, actually, what you're doing is really awesome because one thing we all have to keep in mind that we do science because we love it. It's almost like a hobby. We get excited about it. And we do this with honest taxpayers' money or generous philanthropists. And when we take a penny from them, we also have this responsibility that we got to pay it back in telling what we did in a way that they understand. Because if we just, this is a very simple transaction in life. <laughs> if somebody is helping you to do what you are doing trying to do that, you're going to go back and say, look, this is what we did and this is how it's going to improve mankind. That's what we are also doing because <laughs> you could have just gone back and focused on your thesis, on your PhD or project, whatever you're doing and, you know, spend that time writing manuscripts and reviews that few thousand scientists will read, but you are putting this time into disseminating science to curious minds. Each of them is a taxpayer. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. That was such an incredible interview. I'm so impressed when scientists can so eloquently and thoughtfully share their work and distill down these really complicated things to actionable insights that I feel like I can actually use in my daily life. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that is when their expertise really shines through. And I feel like Sachin really showed us, yeah, what you're saying, what it means to be really thoughtful and clear um, in communicating scientific research. Make sure we get some morning light every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you haven't heard... (laughs) 
And thank you so much for listening. We also want to thank the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, and the Wusai Human Performance Alliance for sponsoring this awesome series on human performance, as well as a thing we want to thank Peter Washington for the music. I love that we thank him every time. We have to. We have to. He makes just, boom, boom. Every time we go to thank him, I just smile yeah. thinking about Peter Washington and how awesome he is. So <laughs> it makes me happy to thank him. <laughs> well, if you would like to be someone that we thank in this outro, you can submit a research fail, someone interview, <laughs> get involved with boom, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube at BiomechanicsOOM. And make sure to just look at our website, BiomechanicsOnOurMinds.com. Yes. That's, that's our domain. That's B-I-O-M. <laughs> 20 minutes boy, later. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening again. Uh, I'm Melissa. <laughs> and I'm Hannah. Biomechanics Off, off Our Minds. minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah.